I'm going to encourage you now to take a copy of the scriptures and turn to the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah chapter 50. Now as a church, we are committed to expositional preaching. This is the type of preaching that works through books or passages of scripture in a verse-by-verse method that looks to make the point of the passage the point of the message. And expositional preaching is at its best when it interprets passages using the lens of Jesus Christ. Now, before we get to that particular graphic on the screen, we practiced this expositional preaching method as we walk through the book of Colossians and as we walk through the Psalms this summer. But for the next season, we're going to step out of this verse-by-verse exposition of Scripture through a book in order to lay a very important foundation for us as a church. We can all acknowledge that sojourn is in a new season of life. I'm relatively new here. This past week marked eight months for Elizabeth and I being a part of the Sojourn Church family and even being residents of Chattanooga. And some of you have been through the reshuffling that this congregation has experienced over the last three to five years. And many of us, just in normal conversation as we discuss life at Sojourn, have used the phrase replant to describe what Sojourn feels like in this season. So starting next week, we're going to dive into a four-week series on gospel-shaped community. And this is overlapping with our Wednesday night Circle Up Life group editions. They're going to parallel one another without hitting all of the same material. And then after this four-week series on gospel-shaped community, we're going to look at what it means to be a gospel-centered church. So that's the plan from next week moving forward. But that leaves this week, today. What are we going to look at today? We're going to visit one of my favorite passages in the Bible for a standalone message, and you've already turned to it, Isaiah chapter 50. So let's read Isaiah 50, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's divorce certificate that I used to send her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Look, you were sold for your iniquities, and your mother was sent away because of your transgressions. Why was no one there when I came? Why was there no one to answer when I called? Is my arm too weak to redeem? Or do I have no power to rescue? Look, I dry up the sea by my rebuke. I turn the rivers into a wilderness The fish rot because of lack of water and die of thirst. I dress the heavens in black and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are instructed to know how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me each morning. He awakens my ear to listen like those being instructed. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn my back. 
I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, I have not been humiliated. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. The one who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us confront each other. Who has a case against me? Let him come near me. In truth, the Lord God will help me. Who will condemn me? Indeed, all of them will wear out like a garment. A moth will devour them. Who among you fears the Lord and listens to his servant? Who among you walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord. Let him lean on his God. Look, all you who kindle a torch, a fire, who encircle yourselves with torches, walk in the light of your fire and of the torches you have lit. This is what you'll get from my hand. You will lie down in a place of torment. This is the word of God for the people of God. The title of this morning's message is A Servant Worth Following. Notice verse 4. An individual says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are instructed to know how to sustain the weary with a word. Then in verse 10, some are described as walking in darkness. I wonder this morning if any of us are weary? Are any of you longing for rest and refreshment and normalcy and comfort? I'll be honest, after what has seemed like nothing but three years of transition for Elizabeth and I, there are days when weariness is the right word. Or perhaps you're seated here and you feel as if you are walking in darkness. No matter how bright the space is that you're seated in. At one point, you know that you could see and perceive reality. You could see clearly, but lately, it just feels like you're walking in the dark. Perhaps your theme song might be the 1965 Simon and Garfunkel song, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. I've come to talk with you again. Weariness and darkness walking. Those two phrases describe what is often the experience of a Christian in a broken world. But this morning, Isaiah 50 introduces those who are weary and all those who walk in darkness to a certain person. That person is the one speaking in verse 4. And he's the one to whom those who are walking in darkness are directed. He is described as the unnamed servant of the Lord. Now, if you were to read the book of Isaiah this morning, you would come across multiple individuals who are described as the servant of the Lord. But only one of them is unnamed. And this one shows up four different times. He shows up in Isaiah 42, verse 1, 49, verses 5 and 6, 
This, our current passage, 52, verse 13, and 53, 11. And these verses are found in what is known or what are known as the servant songs of Isaiah. The identity of this servant is crucial. We cannot misidentify him because he is to be obeyed and listened to according to verse 10. And he has the ability, the only one with the ability, to provide rest for the weary, according to verse 4. So the author, Isaiah, directs all the weary and all the darkness walkers to this servant. So we're going to ask and answer four questions of this passage this morning in order to discover the identity of this servant and why he should matter to us. So question number one, why is this servant even needed? Now, in order to answer that question, we need to very, very briefly summarize Isaiah 41 to 49, very, very briefly. God chose the nation of Israel to be his international representative on earth. They were to be his servant. They were to be God's new humanity, if you will, a new Adam, obeying God, representing God in the ways that the first Adam had failed. But Isaiah records Israel's ongoing rebellion and seemingly irreversible spiritual apathy. That's chapter 41. Then in the first servant song found in Isaiah 42, God introduces for the first time this unnamed servant. This servant is going to be the means by which God will help his people overcome their enemies. So how does Israel respond? With much hope and reception, right? No, they respond with faithlessness. They are spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, spiritually unresponsive. They're incapable of obedience, and they remain indifferent towards their gracious and sovereign God. It's chapter 42. So God again describes his servant in detail in chapter 49. But again, his people refuse to believe that the servant is the answer to their problems. And that brings us to the end of chapter 49, where we find these words in verse 14. But Zion, that's Israel, Israel said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Now, that may seem like a legitimate statement. But God had just taken great pains through the prophet Isaiah to confirm over and over and over and over again with the nation of Israel that the exact opposite was the case. He had not forgotten them. He had not forsaken them. So in the words of Alec Motier, up to this point in Isaiah, the Lord heaps promise upon promise in an attempt to reassure the people and win their trust but to no avail. They remain the dispirited and unbelieving many. So, why is this new servant needed? The answer is because of the unbelief and unresponsiveness of God's people. A few moments ago, I almost sang, but chickened out and rather recited the opening line of a song, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. 
about halfway through that song are these lines. And in the light, I saw 10,000 people, maybe more, people talking without speaking, people hearing without listening. The songwriter could have been writing about the nation of Israel, describing the people of God here in the book of Isaiah. And as Isaiah 50 opens, God comes near to bless his people, but there's no one worthy of being blessed. There is no one who will respond to his call. And so the gracious God is rightly indignant over their unresponsiveness. But there's a change in tone in verse 4. Here we are introduced to a new character, and Yahweh is no longer speaking to Israel in the second person, you or y'all. A new individual is speaking about himself in the first person and referring to the Lord God in the third person, he. So we've seen why the servant is needed because of the unbelief and unresponsiveness of God's people, but how is this servant any different than the other servants that we find in the book of Isaiah. This is our second question. How is the servant different? Well, first, notice the beginning of verse 4. The servant describes himself as obediently speaking God's words. He says that he has the tongue of those who are taught, or the tongue of the learned, the tongue of a disciple, a well-instructed tongue. We see similar language in Isaiah chapter 8. And what the servant is doing is he's identifying himself as one who learns and gives voice to the testimony of God. But the sovereign Yahweh has given this servant the ability to learn and communicate for one specific purpose. Do you see it in verse 4? to sustain with a word him who is weary. Or we could say, to speak a seasonable word to the one who's weary. You see, the servant's communication abilities are obediently leveraged for the benefit of the weary, those who are worn down. He's obediently speaking God's words. But secondly, he describes himself as doing the will of God. Notice the action that Yahweh prompts the servant to. The Lord God has opened my ear. While in verse 8 of chapter 48, Israel's ear was described as having never been opened. And the response of this servant to God opening his ears is this. I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. So the servant describes himself as speaking God's word and doing the will of God, but third, he describes himself as habitually listening to Yahweh's words. Did you catch what he says in the latter half of verse 4? Morning by morning, Yahweh awakens the servant's ears to hear Yahweh's words. Day after day, the servant is listening to the words of God. He then speaks God's word and does God's word. So let me ask you a question. 
in the flow of biblical history who obediently spoke only the words of God, who submissively did all the will of God and habitually listened to every word of God? The answer is none other than Jesus and only Jesus. He, for a time, became the servant of God, even though he was the Son of God. And he came at a great cost. Look at verse 6 of Isaiah 50. I gave my back to those who beat me, and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. So why is the servant needed? Because of the unbelief and unresponsiveness of God's people. How is this servant different? Well, he was repetitively, habitually, and perfectly responsive to God, even when it didn't make sense, and even when it cost him everything. So third question, what will happen to this servant? Well, verse 7 is very clear. In a phrase, God will help him. God will help him. Look at verse 7. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, I have not been humiliated. How can you say that? You gave your back to be beaten. You had your beard plucked out in a sign of absolute shame and disgrace and dishonor in that culture. You were scorned. You were mocked, servant. How can you say you have not been humiliated? He goes on, Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Why? The one who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us confront each other. Who has a case against me? Let him come near me. In truth, the Lord will help me. Who will condemn me? Indeed, all of them, all of my adversaries, the servant says, will wear out like a garment. A moth will devour them. You see, the servant knows that he will never truly be put to shame because God is with him. The nearness of God, God's presence to bless him, means the absence of true disgrace. Even when being disgraced publicly by the beating and by the plucking out of his beard, Jesus knew he would not be finally, utterly, completely disgraced. And that knowledge produced a radical courage within the servant. The servant made a decision to obey God. Did you see how it's worded in our text? I have set my face like flint. Flint is a very hard stone. But what is this servant setting his face towards? Well, maybe that phrase sounds a little familiar to you. I have set my face Well, listen to what Luke tells us in the ninth chapter of his gospel. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him and went ahead and prepared to enter the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his 
face was set towards Jerusalem. Our Lord Jesus, with the full knowledge that God would help him, set his face towards certain suffering and death in Jerusalem, obeying the Father's will so that he might honor God. So where is the help that God is going to provide? Specifically, what is that help? It's described in Isaiah chapter 50 as vindication. We might say, causing him to be justified. This is courtroom language. No one can charge this one with any wrongdoing. His adversaries themselves, those who set themselves against him, they will face shame and disgrace, but not the servant. He will be vindicated. But when does this vindication take place? Well, it begins at the resurrection. That word vindication is a reference indirectly to the resurrection. The servant is saying this, all my adversaries will be worm-eaten in the grave like moths eat a garment. They will be consumed forever in torment, but not me. God will vindicate me. I will not be consumed in the grave. God will not suffer his Holy One to be corrupted. So perhaps you're thinking, Isaiah, this is fascinating. Kudos to the servant. He knew God would help him. That gave him courage in the midst of difficulty. But Isaiah, I am not the servant who repetitively, habitually, and perfectly obeys the words of God. I am full of failure, confusion, weakness, suffering, discouragement, sin, fear, frustration. I know God helped the servant, but what about me? And if that's your question in your mind right now, that's the right question. Because let's face it, we are all full of failure, confusion, weakness, frustration, sin, discouragement, and fear. So question number four, why should this servant matter to you? Because the servant Jesus obediently, obediently listened to, spoke, and obeyed God's words habitually, repetitively, and perfectly so that he might face suffering and death for you in your place. Jesus was repetitively and habitually responsive to God in our place because we are not, nor can we be, repetitively, habitually, perfectly responsive to God. That is the good news of the gospel. This servant perfectly obeyed God in every way that you and I have failed God this week so that when God looks upon us, if we cling to the servant as our Savior, God sees us not in our weakness and sin and frustration and failure and discouragement. He sees us in Christ, the perfect righteous one. And if this servant is, the, is your Lord, then he gives you an example to follow in the darkness. And that example is one of keep trusting. Look at verse 10. There are four descriptions 
of the one who is committed to following the servant. First, that person fears the Lord. Who among you fears the Lord? Second, he obeys the servant and obeys the servant of the Lord. Third, that person walks in darkness. Who among you walks in darkness? And fourth, that person has no light. Now, we're used to the darkness-light analogy in Scripture to describe those who are outside of Christ and those who are in Christ. But that is not the analogy here. All four of these are together. This is not a multiple-choice statement. In this text, those who fear the Lord, who obey the voice of the servant, are walking in darkness and have no light. They often go hand in hand. As we follow our Savior, we should not be surprised to find ourselves following Him into pain and suffering and what seems to be darkness, where there are no easy answers, no shortcuts, no ways to avoid the pain. But there are also two expectations for the one following the servant. And those expectations are to trust and to lean. The word for lean on is the idea of laying oneself down upon, a position of complete helplessness and dependence. And these are commands, commands to continue in an uninterrupted exercise. Now, it might be super awkward, but I could lay myself down on the concrete this morning as I'm preaching. And I could preach the rest of the message from that position in an uninterrupted exercise of laying myself down upon. And that is the picture of the Christian life. Laying ourselves down upon the grace and mercy and goodness and the person of Jesus Christ. Back in 2008, just a few months into marriage, I was driving and talking and looking at Liz while I was driving. We were catching up after a long day. And I accidentally ran a red light in one of the busiest intersections in the city that we were living in at the time. And the end result of that was I totaled two vehicles and sent Elizabeth to the ER in an ambulance. And I will never forget watching my bride of five months or something like that lay herself down upon the stretcher as the EMTs immobilized her neck and back as there were concerns of potential injury. And our text this morning calls us to recognize our need, our brokenness, our injury, our inability to do nothing but lay ourselves down upon the mercy and care of God. And God calls us to continue uninterrupted to trust him in that way to trust him for, to be all he has declared himself to be and to do all he has said he will do. We allow the Father to secure us in Jesus, strap us down, immobilize us in his grace. And what will Yahweh's response be? Well, in the words of the hymn writer, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not no, will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake.
But if the servant isn't your Lord, should he matter to you? To be honest, there's a verse here I would love to skip entirely, or at least dull its effects. I'd love to word it differently, change the tone, adjust it to make it more palatable. But this is what God has said. And so I say this, read this verse with great love for you as a fellow human being made in the image of God, made to worship and enjoy Him for all of eternity. But if you are not currently following the servant and submissive to Him, then you're not laying yourself down upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you are self-reliant and God tells us in this passage what all those who are self-reliant can expect. Look at verse 11. Remember, darkness walking. Yahweh says, look, all of you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with torches, go ahead, walk in the light of your fire and of the torches that you have lit. But if you do that, this is what you'll get from my hand. You will lie down in a place of torment. Friends, there are only two options. You trust God to be all he has declared himself to be. You lay yourself down upon the servant, Jesus Christ, and you continue uninterrupted in the exercise of that faith in the midst of the darkness of a fallen world, you cling to Jesus. Or you try to make your own way in the darkness. You light your own fires. You kindle your own torches. In Isaiah, in Isaiah 62, verse 1, the coming salvation for God's people is described as a burning torch. In this text... God is confronting us who would create our own salvation, who in self-reliance would create our own deliverance, who would make our own torches and fires. If Jesus is our Lord, if we are following this servant, then we refuse the fraudulent light from the fires and torches mentioned in verse 11. When there is darkness and no light, we refuse to get into the fire manufacturing business. Instead, we do what is required in the dark. We lean on the only one who is capable of leading us through. So I wonder what fire starters you tend to carry in your pocket just in case. What is it that you're tempted to pull out and lean into when you're walking in darkness? Maybe it's your biblical knowledge. Maybe it's your Christian heritage. Or your kindness and goodness. After all, everybody seems to like you. Or your moral integrity, your personal affability, your wisdom. Maybe it's your financial portfolio. Maybe it's people's opinions of you. What do you tend to rely on to manufacture deliverance from present and future troubles? Any answer that is not God 
is an insufficient fire starter with dangerous consequences. We cannot produce the light we need for genuine safety and security. And our self-reliance is deadly. Friend, if you choose to continue to walk by the light of your own fire, if you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ and remain in that state, if you continue to walk by the torches that you make, if you rely on those man-made saviors, these personal fire starters, then literally God says, you have this from my hand to you. It's a personal transaction from God to you. You will lie down in torment. But the context of this verse, the context of the warning of this work verse is this. You can forsake your idolatry. You can lay aside your fire starters. You can get out of the fire manufacturing business when you're walking in darkness and you can simply obey Jesus and respond to him in repentance and faith, laying down your torches, surrendering to him and simply following him. So we've asked and answered our four questions this morning. And all that's left now is application. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the application is very clear. What is preventing you from laying down your self-made torches, trying to light your way through the darkness of life? What's preventing you from clinging to Jesus Christ alone? And is that something worth giving up an eternal relationship with a God who loves you and who gave his son for you? But for those of us who are following Jesus, and for many of you in this room, that would be your profession, that you have laid yourself down upon the servant and you're following him. There's several ways this passage becomes for us healing in our brokenness. Number one, use this passage when you lack motivation to read, study, memorize, obey, and love God's word. Because the servant himself, as he habitually listens to God, by his spirit is able to work that same desire into us. So gaze at the incarnate Christ as he's awakened by God morning by morning to meet with God and be taught by him. And then join him in fellowship through the word and prayer. Gaze on the glory of Jesus as he obediently and submissively does God's will and be strengthened by the spirit to follow him. And gaze on the glory of God in giving Jesus an awakened and opened ear to hear until that glory begs you to ask or moves you to beg God that he would do the same for you. Number two, use this passage when you're tempted towards self-reliance, manipulation, and idolatry. Because let's be honest, whether or not we are actively laying ourselves down upon Jesus Christ, every single one of us have been tempted towards manipulation, idolatry, and self-reliance. And no one is a more perfect example of that than the guy behind this pulpit this morning. So gaze, we must gaze on the glory of Jesus as he warns self-reliant fire starters 
until we find welling up within us the joyful response that nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And in the dark, we continue to lay ourselves down upon the solid rock who is Christ. And number three, use this passage when you doubt God's goodness and power in your suffering. Because in our suffering, that's what we tend to doubt, right? Either God is not good or he's not powerful. Otherwise, I wouldn't be experiencing this suffering. But gaze on the glory of God as he, in suffering, gives his presence. The illness, the retaliation in the workplace for your gospel witness, the loss of face within your family for your belief in the exclusivity of Christ, none of these remove from you the presence of God. Because he is with you. He is near you to help you because of Jesus. In the words of one man, God is a God who is truly God, sovereign at all times, in all places, over all forces, in all circumstances. But he's also the God of all grace, who hears our cries of distress, knows our sorrows, and comes down to deliver. And at some point, each one of us is going to face that final day of suffering, death. And at that point, we can gaze on the glory of the vindicated Christ who stands resurrected at the right hand of God, who has already faced death and conquered it for us. So we can gaze on him until our fears are removed. And finally, use this passage when Satan accuses you. I wonder if you have felt that accusation this week. You know, the accusation that you're unworthy, that you're full of dishonor and shame and guilt and sin, and you've messed up too many times, and why on earth would God forgive you again? Seriously, you blew it again. You're stretching the patience of God. Like, what are you thinking? Has anyone else ever had thoughts like that besides me? When Satan reminds us that we are a sinful wretch, he is giving us ammunition because Christ died for sinners. It is the very fact that we are sinful that alone qualifies us for life in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we celebrate our sin, but that means when Satan comes and accuses us, then we get to gaze at the glory of Jesus, who himself cannot be accused, against whom no guilty charge can stand, and we get to lay aside our unbelief in repentance and seek God for the secure humility that rests in the fact that we are in Christ and Christ alone. What is my hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. So we can say with our Savior in verses 8 and 9, Satan, I am more unworthy than you know, but he who vindicates me is near. 
Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who can declare me guilty? The servant of Isaiah 50 habitually and repetitively responds to God the Father on your behalf and on my behalf so that you and I, though guilty, may be declared not guilty. And he, beloved, is a servant worth following.